Guys, we're recording. Okay, today's topic. Today's topic is why can't I just be happy? That is the topic of today. Subtitle was, don't you wish that you could have back that laughter you had as a child? That just carefree, full, and I shouldn't focus on carefree yet, but that full laughter. It wasn't tampered by what happened, what you're afraid is going to happen. It was a full laughter. Next subtitle, don't you wish that you had something that you really enjoyed doing? What did I mean by this? What I mean by this is that, have you ever sat down thinking, you know, I want to do something now. I just want to have recreational, rejuvenating time. And the only way you can have that is if you enjoy doing something. Have you ever had a day off and you walked around your house wondering, what am I going to do? What, what do I want to do? I, I got time now. No, no, I'm not talking about cleaning. I'm talking about a day you specifically are not going to do work. This is for you. It's not catching up with the laundry. It's not you know, restocking your pantry. You're not shopping. You're not cleaning. You're not working. This is a day for the rejuvenation of my mind, my heart, and my soul. But what do you work that means that for you? Well, then, then you have something you enjoy. Oh, yeah. My question is that I have come across yeah. where there's a day which is my day. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I realize that I haven't spoken to myself in so long, I don't even know what I like doing when I have my day. So instead of having a rejuvenating day, it turns frustrated. And then what will I do? Okay, um, let's go out to eat. But I don't really like that. Uh, let's go. And all of a sudden, like, you're making phone calls, and before long, you just slump into the chair with the remote control. Okay, it's a beer and a video. Sports. That's for the male. For the female, it's going to be something else. So what do you enjoy doing? Now, I'm not telling you what you need to enjoy. It could be a day in the mall. It could be a walk on the beach. It could be sitting next to your pool with a book. I, I, I don't care what it is. But is there a picture in your mind on a frustrated Thursday where you say, oh, Sunday, I know exactly what I'm going to do, so don't worry, good times are coming. That will have to be if you have something that you really enjoy doing. The next step is, and, and I'm not going to step on your toes, my dear friend, but enjoying work is a little dangerous. There's I think some, it's the greatest gift. I understand that, but there's got to be a day where it's not about enjoying work. It's just about leaving the environment, stepping out, just going out. So I'm not going to challenge you, I'm not going to ask you whether you've spoken to professional help about workaholic, but what I am going to share with you is I'm talking specifically about not working. Okay. Now, any good person is working in what they enjoy doing. If not, you will not excel and you won't... You, but I'm talking about beyond that. You know that famous pyramid, right? You have it in your diet, you also have it now in your emotional build. So it is business, family, religion. I'm talking about the box that is not business. Now, if the box that's business and the box that's recreational is one and the same, I'm going to challenge that. Respectfully so. Okay. Which leads me to the last line of the subtitle. Don't you wish that you could just be happy? Back to the, to the title. Why can't I just be happy? Introduction. Introduction is, happy is a chassid. What does that mean? What does it mean, happy is a chassid? 
What it means is that the Baal Shem Tov has an amazing teaching. Baal Shem Tov as in founder, Rabbi Sol Baal Shem Tov, founder of the entire Hasidic movement before it branched off into different branches of Hasidus. The Baal Shem Tov says as follows. It's a two-part saying. I'm just going to focus on the part that we need for our table now. Even though sadness is not a sin, what sadness can lead to, the worst sin cannot lead to. I'm going to say that again. Even though there is no prohibition, number 366, that says, thou shall not be sad, slash depressed, whatever you want to put in there. Nevertheless, Baal Shem Tov says, what sadness slash depression can lead you to, the worst sin cannot lead you to. So, it's interesting that most people, from the fiddle on the roof scene, to your general picture of Hasidim, most people, when they think of a Hasid, they usually have that famous caricature of the dancing Hasid with his sitters in his gartel, swinging and his hands in the, in, the ha- in the air with some Hasidic dance pose. Because in our mind, we associate Hasidim, most Hasidim, with an inner happiness. We don't know how it happens, there's 12 kids living in a two-bedroom apartment on a minimal salary, and yet, as I drive out of my five-bedroom, three-car garage, apartment on the water with a Jaguar with two kids, and each one have a separate room and a separate playroom, I'm mixing that happiness. What is it? What is going on here? What is that inner happiness of a chassid? That is the Baal Shem Tov's teaching. That is very much what defines a chassid. When you try to put the Baal Shem Tov's vision and mission statement into words, happiness is going to be right up there. Simcha was a huge, a huge vision and mission and purpose of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, I want to carefully define that what defines a chassid's happiness is that it is the inside-out happiness, not the outside-in happiness. Let me give you a simple example. A bar of chocolate is an outside-in form of happiness. An inside-out form of happiness is something totally different. And therefore, if we're going to put on the table here now that happiness defines life, while sadness defines a ghostly shadow of death, Hasidim are alive. This is the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov and the work of his successor Hasidic masters known as Rebbes. That's what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, why can't I just be happy? I'm not talking about a happiness that is a compilation of cumulative external factors. If I was rich, if I had a perfect marriage, if I had a big house, if I had my kids in Harvard, if that's not the happiness we're talking about. Any happiness that can be caused or broken by an external if is not a chassid's happiness. It's not what the Baal Shem Tov was talking about. So please hear carefully what we're talking about. Why can't I just be happy? Someone asked me this morning, so what are you going to talk about? And that's what I told them. I told them there are people who are happy 
who have sad occasions, challenges. Versus there are people who are sad who have happy moments. I'm not talking about the latter. That's my challenge today. Which is going to lead us into a very interesting um, exploration today. So, what is the challenge? What is the challenge on the table? Let's talk about this for a moment. Have you ever noticed that the normal infant's state of emotional being is happy? I've never yet heard someone ask someone else, wow, why is that baby so happy? We expect it. We expect babies to be happy. And when a baby's not happy, we always ask, hmm, why is that baby sad? And then we start looking. Is the mother always sad? Is the house always sad? But I know that if my baby is not with inner happiness, check his diaper, check his stomach cage, or find out what's going on. Because the natural flow of the human infant is to be happy. And then the infant turns into a child. And in the childhood years, I've never had, I've worked in school, I've never had a meeting where we discussed, there's a problem. Johnny is so happy. We should look into the parents. We should look into, no. But I can tell you how many meetings we have had. Have you noticed that little Joanne lately has been sad? Now the reason why that happens is because that's abnormal to us. Children should not be sad. Let's say it differently. Children should naturally be happy. Unless there's something interfering. It's just the normal process. Flames go up, water seeps down, children are happy. Have a fan blowing at the flame, the flame's not going up. Have a fan blowing at the stream of water, the water's not going directly down. Because there's an external factor bothering it. With that being the case, we need to understand. When we're not happy, why? I don't need a reason to be happy. That's our normal state of breathing, being. And then somewhere along our childhood, something changed. Happy infant, happy child, something changed. Guys, I'm going to present to you a serious question now. Don't answer me verbally. I just want it in your minds for a moment, if you can. Can you please, for a moment to yourself, identify the exact moment or experience in which that happiness was altered for the rest of your experience of life? What I'm going to say here today is, there has to be that moment. Because there was a natural flow, something, somewhere, someone, somehow, there was a moment in time in which, if you're really daringly honest with yourself, willing to get really naked in front of the mirror, you should be able to put your finger on a moment where the natural flow from infancy into childhood was altered. Question. What happened at that moment? 
I'm going to now explore with you that I don't really need to know what happened at that moment. What I do need to know is what about that moment made that experience permanent, pervasive, and personal? Please walk away from this class remembering those three P's. What made that moment permanent, pervasive, and personal? Let's go back, okay? Whatever moment it was, at whatever age it was, it was not the first time you were let down. Okay? Let's do some regressive therapy. Do you remember being in your crib? And your diaper was wet. And the audacity of your mother, it took 40 minutes for her to wake up and hear you crying. You were let down. From the moment you were born, you've never cried for more than 10 seconds. The minute your face started cringing up into a cry, your Yiddish mama swooped down and went between nursing and changing diaper and taking you to work and uitatala, uitatala, what happened? And all of a sudden, there was this horrific experience. At 4 a.m., you woke up. It took 40 minutes for your exhausted mom to wake up and hear you. But what happened after that? Your mother came into the room, cooed you, kissed you, accused herself of being the worst mother in the world, picked you up, hugged you, shook you, changed your diaper, nursed you, and what happened after that? After that, you forgave your mother and slipped back into happiness. So hear what I'm saying. It's not about what happened. It's about the child. Never, it never dawned upon the child that I am an undeserving child to have my diaper changed. It never dawned upon the child, my entire world is forever going to be damned. She never cares about me. She always ignores me. Interesting, interesting to know when we picked up those words in our life. Permanent words, pervasive words, personal words. My question to you is that what happened at that moment that changed your natural flow? As a baby, you've waited. Your mother was unfortunately born with only two hands. She couldn't actually make the bottle, change your diaper, and hold you at the same time. You were let down in your world. In a child's world, six seconds is the memory span. So you realize six seconds is infinity. The seventh second is beyond reality. She kept you waiting seven seconds. That doesn't mean seven seconds. Translate that to baby language. That is infinity. You were never there for me. And yet, what did it take? What did it take for the baby to slip back into security, happiness, back into its natural flow? That happened through infancy, that happened through childhood, until at one moment, one moment, something happened to you that all of a sudden it became always everything and me. Questions. Who made this experience different from all other experiences? Remember, I'm talking about this moment. If you've isolated it in your mind, kol akavod, all hat off. If you haven't, then just please know, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm telling you there was that moment. Please know that the human mind is programmed to protect you. If it hurts too much, the mind has locked it away into non-existence. 
whether you should or shouldn't go back there and open up that door. I got my opinions. Some therapists have their opinions. I'm for it. I've always, in counseling, told people, you're strong enough. Unless I really think there's problems, then don't go there. So, with that being said, what made, who, let's start with the who, who made this experience different than any other experience? We may suggest that it was who did it to you. You get hurt by your own father, mother, or those who biologically, naturally should be there to protect you. And they're the ones that scratch your seed. Remember that they get to places in you that no one else gets to. So it could be a who question, right? Well, it's different, you know. My friend walked out at me. My girlfriend walked out at me. My dis walked out at me. That's one thing. But my own father abused me. My own mother abused me. I have no foundation. The scratch is deep. Maybe that's what did it. I'm going to tell you no. Who did it? You. That means me for me, you for you. The only person who turned that minute from another water off a duck's back minute into an always everything me, permanent, pervasive, personal, was me. Question number two. We're going to get back to this in a moment. Question number two. How did we make this experience different than all prior experience? So, I'm sorry, let's go back. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Question number one, who did it? I'm telling you, you. Question number one, why did you do it? Presently, I'm going to answer you, I am not sure. Why did this experience, did you do different than all others? In all other experiences, you were gold, you were perfect, you were pure. It's that idiot, but I'll forgive them. Okay, let's just move on. And somehow at this moment, it wasn't the other person, it wasn't an isolated instance. It was permanent, pervasive, and personal. Why? Presently I'm answering you, I am not sure. Question number three. How did we make this experience different? My answer here is that this is what we have come to explore and hopefully by understanding the answer to the how, we will have some answer to the why. But I am going to say the way I lined up this, the why is a little bit out of the scope, I'm more focused on the how and let me tell you the most important question because without this last question, the rest is meaningless. Can we and how can we change it back to the most natural emotional state of being. Can we go back to, it's not personal, it's not pervasive, it's not permanent, my personal pervasive and permanent state, emotional state of being is, I'm happy. So, to answer the question of how can you, Hasidus explores this, Hasidus teaches this, and that's why I'm here sharing this with you. Now I need to make a little bit of a... Uh, I'm going to make a little admission here. I'm going to admit to something. I have succumbed to the marketing intellect which told me that if I title this in the negative sense, why can't I just be happy? It would have a greater pull effect than if I would have gone to the positive 
mode of, what's the word I use for the positive? I have come to be happy. Now I need to tell you something. What I should have named this was, I have come to be happy. Hoping that people see that, they want to be happy, and they'll come. And those who are happy want to go deeper into happiness, and they'll come. And yet, my gut feeling is, from a marketing point of view, that naming it, why can't I just be happy, and there will be more readers, there will be more people involved, more people coming, more people listening. Very interesting. What this tells me is that I need to get back to a Hasidic Fabrengen really quickly. Because that's not natural. So while marketing intellect will feed off human fallacy, knowing that fear, the negative, is what drives people, from a Hasidic point of view, I see, I know, and I live. That it's actually light that attracts. If I turn on a light, you'll come. I don't need to turn off your light to have you come to me. I just need to turn on my light. Light attracts. Something went wrong. I need to admit that. Why did I name this in the negative? Guys, let's move on. Question. Who put you on trial? Who? Who put us on trial? Let me explain this. Okay? My involvement in domestic abuse has taught me that power cannot be taken, power needs to be given. Let's be very clear about this. The abuser is working diligently by setting up an environment which will seduce you to give up your power. But power cannot be taken. In my personal life, what this has taught me is a very powerful question that I ask myself over and over. If someone did something wrong to me, my question always becomes, what is it about me that allowed that person to think that he or she can do this to me? Have you ever noticed that an abuser has never abused the wrong person? Isn't that amazing? Abusers only abuse those who are susceptible to being abused. That's amazing. Do the same thing to someone else, you're going to end up with broken arms and legs and knocked out teeth. Do it to Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, you'll even get an apology for them leading you into behaving this way. Follow the difference? So power cannot be taken. Power is given. While the person has identified, you know, you, you watch the animal kingdom, you will realize that the cougar doesn't see a whole herd of zebras. It has identified either the young, the weakest, or the sick. When it's at a hunt, it doesn't make a difference that it's about to pass a zebra because it's focused. It knows its target. So while, again, the abuser is creating a scenario which allows those who are susceptible to abuse to be seduced into giving up power, power must be given, power cannot be taken. Let's go back to the question I asked. Who is the one that made this experience 
different than all other experience. I unequivocally answered you, the answer needs to be you. Because power needs to be given, power cannot be taken. So understand that the question of who put you on the stand, who put you on trial, the answer is you. You may have been challenged by others, but the answer is you. So let me tell you a story. It's a story I heard. It's a joke. Um, this art teacher, you know, begins her art class, young, young, you know, preschool, young school, and goes ahead and draws one dot in the wall. Turns around and, little Johnny, what do you see on the wall? I see a naked man. Then she goes ahead and she puts a second dot on the blackboard. Little Johnny, what do you see now on the blackboard? I see a naked man, I see a naked woman. She's like, whoa. Teacher wants to change the whole scenario. Makes this line connecting to do dots. Little Johnny, what do you see now on the wall, on the blackboard? I see a male, a naked male, a naked, a naked female engaging in a sexual act. And she's like, little Johnny, you are so perverted. And little Johnny says, me? You're the one drawing the pictures. Please hear me. God is the art teacher. You and I are little Johnny. And the dots and lines on the blackboard are experiences. I'm going to ask you again the question. Who is the person, the only person, who made that one experience different than all other experiences? The answer is you. In other terms, it's we did. Please hear me when I say this. Who is the person who changed that happy, normal, natural, emotional state of being of the human soul? The answer is, we did. Now, at some point in our lives, we all experienced the dots and the lines that the teacher drew on our blackboard. Some of those dots and lines were quite challenging, are quite challenging, will be quite challenging. But remember, who is the one who made this experience different than all other experiences? All prior experiences were water off a duck's back. It wasn't personal, it wasn't pervasive, it wasn't permanent. I am a good person, living a good life, with occasional challenging moments. Who changed that? We did. So let's get to the next stage. What changed? What changed in that one isolated moment? What I'm going to tell you changed is the heading of this piece of the lecture is called Perception is Reality. It's not about what happened. It's about what you perceived happened. Let's put a very simple case scenario on the table. You're driving on the 95. Person cuts you off, turns around and gives you the dumb laugh. So, let's divide the story. Person driving on the 95 cuts you off. You're upset. You pretty much said, why didn't that idiot leave to his appointment a little earlier? 
the person cuts you off, turns around, and gives that dominant, submissive laugh at you. I'm going to suggest that at this point, you're more upset about the laugh than about being cut off. Same scenario. Friend cuts you off, turns around, and gives that sickly laugh. You're now more bothered by the fact that it is your friend who did that to you. I want to add on one more scenario. Friend is driving beside you, looks at you, sees it's you, cuts you off, turns around, and laughs at you. A nasty laugh. You will all agree with me that the last scenario is the one that bothers you the most. Knew it was you, looked at you, cut you off, turned around and laughed at you. May I please just put a very simple fact on the table? From the physical point of view, they're all the same case. You were cut off. Interesting, we didn't stop to think about that. From the factual physical case, the reality, not the perception of reality, from reality, case number one, two, three, and four, were all exactly the same. You were cut off. You had to swerve, you were the, I don't know what happened. You spilled your coffee because you had to give a quick turn. But nothing changed. From reality point of view, nothing changed. And yet, everything is different. It's different if he just cut you off and put up his hand saying, I'm sorry. It's different if he turned around and laughed at you. It's different if it was your friend. If it was different if your friend let you know that she knows that it's you and you're her friend, she cut you off. Your friend looked at you, saw it was you, cut you off, and then laughed at you, making fun of you. The difference is only in perception, not in the physical reality of the facts that took place. So what I'm sharing with you here is that whatever that moment was about, it wasn't about what happened as much as it was about why, in your mind, why it happened. So now we're beginning to isolate what was it about that moment. And the answer is that you shifted from the what to the why. I'm going to suggest to you that when you were there, six months old, in your crib, with a wet diaper, screaming hysterically, it took your mother 45 minutes to wake up and get to you, you have not once asked yourself, why isn't she coming? When adults make cartoons about kids, they put those thought bubbles on kids. Kids don't get it. By the way, Please note, kids do not understand cynicism. Have you ever noticed that? They need to be taught cynicism. The first time you're cynical with a kid, the kid has a look on his face like, what? Are you serious? You're not serious? What's going on here? Because children don't understand perceived reality. Children understand reality. It's not about my mother doesn't love me, she didn't come, she doesn't care about me no more. It's like, hello guys, I got a wet diaper. That's all. It's the facts. What happened? At some point in your life, 
the self-perceived perception of reality has become more real than the factual physical reality and that endangered your natural emotional state of being called happiness. So I want to go over this again. I want to say it clearly. Whatever has ever happened to you in your life, as painful or as challenging as it may be, that has never endangered long-term, permanently, your natural emotional state of being, which is to be happy. But the why, the why it happened, that is what really endangers your natural emotional state of being, which is happiness. Let me share with you why, so it's not like, oh, the old sage rabbi is saying something. Let's make sense out of it. Let's think for a moment. When the question is, what happened? The natural inclination of reply is, I need to do something about this. What demands a action-reaction? Why demands an emotional reaction? So, the perception of reality demands emotion. The factual reality demands concrete steps of action. So, God forbid, you lose your business, your house is in foreclosure. The normal reaction before the question of, what did I do wrong? Why is this happening to me? God, where are you? The normal reaction to lay the facts on the table, ma'am, is okay. What do we need to do about this? This is the fact. What do we do? But when the emotional why becomes more powerful, real, painful than the what, then you're stuck in producing a remote, an emotional reaction rather than an action reaction. So what I'm going to share here is that what happened at that moment that had altered your natural emotional state of being of human happiness is that you shifted from the what to the why. All of a sudden, the perception of reality became more real, pertinent priority than the factual reality. What does that mean? That means that the question why is what leads to making it permanent, pervasive, and personal. The question of what does not do that. What happened doesn't make you believe it will always happen. Why it happened will make you believe it will always happen. So the difference between a challenging moment being water off a duck's back or becoming permanent is when you shift from the what to the why. What happened? Hey, it happens. Let's get over it. Let's move on. Let's, let's react. The why it happened tells me, oh, that's always going to happen. It's always. It's everything. It's me. 
let's shift to the next part of this lecture. The first one was who put you on the stand, which led to perception is reality, and now I want to get to the most difficult part of this lecture, called the sentencing. I want to share with you that the answer to the why, remember I said that we'll get some insight into the why from the what? We still understand why people do this, but let's talk about it for a moment. The answer to the why of the why can't I just be happy is always in one form of another or another of us passing a sentence upon ourselves. Sentence as in judge, sentence. Do you know what that sentence is that now leads me to the question why I can't just be happy? The sentence will always be, I deserve this. Or, I don't deserve any better. When you sentence yourself to that sentence... You have just created an everlasting, never-ending question of why can't I just be happy? So I'm going to tell you a, a personal story. When I was about nine or ten years old, my mother's childhood friend, through school up, was taking her children and my family's children, my wife and my mother's children, to those of you in New York, you know that on the intermediate days of Pesach or Sukkot, when there's no school for the Jewish schools, the normal place to go is to Six Flags Entertainment Park, Adventure Park, called Great Adventures. For those of you who are in New York, you know what Great Adventures is. Okay. And then my mother's friend announced that she will not be taking me, Avrumi. Why? Because Avrumi is a very wild kid. I know that you can't believe this, <laughs> but she announced that she will not. There's two, two, three other kids. There's her two girls, my brother, and she announced she's not taking me. And she announced that the reason why she will not be taking me is because I'm wild and she doesn't want to take responsibility. Great Adventures is a big place. She doesn't want to take responsibility. So, 43 years old, this happened when I was 9. Like today, I see myself sitting on the floor next to the door. They drove off and I was in hysterics. I would not budge from the floor. I was sitting right there next to the door, crying hysterically. My mother turned to me and said, quote unquote, it serves you right. You're such a wild kid. Now, let me tell you that this lecture, I'm not putting my mother on the stand. I went to therapy and she told me I don't have to forgive my mother. And No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll share my views on those type of therapists a different time. But for right now, 
please hear me. I'm 43 years old. I don't consider myself to be emotionally or intellectually retarded. Please know that the pain of not going to great adventures lasted probably an hour. The pain of what my mother said to me lingers on. What happened at that moment? What happened at that very day? Let me tell you that at that day, I sentenced myself. At that day, I shifted from what happened to me to why it happened. At that day, I truly sentenced myself that I am a wild person in a child's mind that's a bad person who deserves to go through bad things, who doesn't deserve to go to great adventures with his brother and friends or whatever. That was, if I ask you to go back in time and find your moment, I am telling you now, knowing that I'm talking to human beings and this will be recorded, is being recorded, will be sent out. Please know that I can clearly tell you as I stand today, as far as I've gone back in my own procedures, that that was the moment where there would be no more water flowing off running off a duck's back. That was that experience in my life where I sentenced myself. Let me tell you what happens, right? What happens is that from that moment in life, nine-year-old, that's young, from that moment in life, I am paralyzed from taking a well-planned, educated risk. What, are you kidding me? Well, I'm going to give God a chance to do what I deserve to happen to me? I'm not taking no risks. By the grace of God, do I live that He didn't strike me down without taking a risk? Let me tell you, if something could go wrong, what do you think I'm expecting? It should go wrong. Why do I expect that? Because at nine years old, I've come to learn I am a bad person, I don't deserve to have good, and I deserve to go through challenging times. Let me tell you what the extreme manifestation of this is. That such a person from the day he holds his first child in his hands, he is in an anxiety of when will come the time when God will, God forbid, take away his child because that's what justice deserves. Follow the extremity of what happens when you sentence yourself. You deserve to make a living. You deserve to be happily married. You deserve to have kids. You deserve success. You know what justice deserves. God isn't bad when He does these things to you. He's being just. The self-sentencing that is what changes everything. When you've allowed yourself to give up that power of believing that I am a good person who sometimes makes mistakes, and you have sentenced yourself to I am a bad person who sometimes does good things, and you know that while God is compassionate, God is just. 
The signature of God actually is not compassion. The signature of God is truth. Truth is closer to justice than it is to compassion. So then, what am I thinking? How could I take a risk? How could I believe I deserve to be happy? Now, here comes even a more important factor. Then you go ahead and you stop and you think, I'm 43 years old. Let me look back at my life. Has God ever hurt me? Let me go back and think. Prior to this moment, when I was a kid, did God ever hurt me? When I was a teenager, did God ever hurt me? Does God ever in the past, did He ever strike me down at any opportunity He had, capital H, He had? And heaven knows, I've given Him a fair share of opportunities. Just put the facts on the table. It's what the great Chavis Halavavis, Duris to the Heart, says in his gateway of trust. You want to trust God? Look at your track record with Him. Prior to this challenge, has He ever done something to viciously hurt you for no other sake than to hurt you? If the answer is no, then why are you trembling? Do you know what the answer of someone who self-sentence himself is? Please remember this. Don't confuse me with the facts. Doesn't make a difference. 43 years, healthy, everyone's got his ups and downs. Why? Why? How? Where? How do I point a finger to God? With my intellectual logic to say, God, you hate me. Really? Remember that story in Fiddler on the Roof? Do I love you? Wash you? Well, God has washed my laundry, taken care of me. Forget about whether I'm asking Him do I love, do you love me? Which in itself would be chutzpah. I'm not even bothered asking him. I know the answer to that. So it's more like, why do you hate me? Why? Self-sentencing. It's not isolated scenarios that are growing opportunities, painful are growing opportunities, challenging growing opportunities. That's not what it is. She hates me. And I can't even take him to task. That's what I deserve. So now we do clearly understand what is going on here. We understand what happened at some moment. You put yourself on the stand. Because other children told the same thing, didn't even hear it. It's like a mother hears a child say, I hate you. Did it ever register? Say so little kids all excited, they're screaming. You didn't even hear the child say, I hate you, because your child doesn't hate you. Your child is very upset with what's just happened, doesn't know how to express himself, hasn't been taught manners, thinks he can say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but he doesn't hate you. Whose bed do you think he's crawling into tonight? So, what was said, remember, the physical facts aren't important, power can't be taken. At some, for some reason, at that moment in my life, I gave my power away, I put myself on the stand, I sentenced myself, and then from there it's just procedure. Unraveling, self-prophecy, self-sentencing. 
So guys, let's not just cook on Indy and, and, and kvel and whatever the word I want to use is. Fester is the right word in the problem. I got to understand the cure. Next part of this lecture called the cure. What is the cure? Very often when the Tzemach Tzedek, Third Lubavitch Rebbe, was asked for guidance or blessing or prayer for a person going through a chassid, going through a challenging situation. The Tzemach Tzedek's answer was, Trach gut, gut. Think good and it will be good. That has become a slogan. They even made those bands now, you know, those plastic bands. Think good and it will be good. And that was a slogan. Now, that slogan in Chabad Lubavitch really has become more a spiritual energy than a logic process. Think good and it will be good. Really. Can I tell you how many people thought good and it didn't happen good? I mean, really, if you put that to the litmus test, I'm not sure that would really, in the world of logic be able to pass the laboratory test. Yet, in Chabad Lubavitch, the third Rebbe had said it, it has a spiritual energy that makes it real and makes it happen. So, what happens? Comes along our Rebbe, blessed memory, and our Rebbe all of a sudden takes it from the spiritual energy slogan and turns it into a logical process of concentration and meditation. So, let's go ahead and finish this up. What happens here? Now, let's talk about this. The Rebbe approach, remember Chassidus approach, bird's eye view versus worm's eye view. I'm not belittling the worm, but the worm is, I'm down here looking up. How do I deal with this issue? The bird's eye view is, I'm on top, I see that in reality there is no problem, you just got lost in a maze, come let me walk you out of it. Understand that from the Rebbe's approach, we're not cutting down the trees, the, the, the branches, or the tree. We're looking to rip out the roots of this problem. So let's talk about this for a moment, okay? How does the Rebbe deal with it? Well, to appreciate that, what do you think a therapist would say about this? Someone comes to you and talks about it. So, for those of you who've ever read pioneering works of Dr. Seligman's uh, Cognitive Therapy, um, Learned Optimism, he's got a couple of books about that. So, he talks about very simple. It's a process. Optimists always apply the three Ps to positive situations. When something good happens, that is permanent, pervasive, and personal. Pessimists apply the three P's to negative situations. When something bad happens, that's permanent, pervasive, and personal. The optimistic person goes through negative experiences, but sees it as an extraordinary, unusual abnormality. While the pessimistic person who's applied the three P's to the negativity sees an optimistic good moment as extraordinary, unusual, abnormal, don't be expecting that to happen again anytime soon. So from Dr. Selzman's perspective of learned optimism, he's telling you, you learned how to apply the three P's to negativity, you can learn how to now apply those three P's through, to optimism. 
If you want to go to a different form, a Freud form of, of therapy, it'll be more in the why does this happen? This is the natural, and this is a, you know, and then we get into the environmental versus genetic, and we can talk and talk and talk and then deal with our client, telling him, okay, this is what your situation is. And this is how to get out of it. So, what does the Rebbe do? The Rebbe, besides emphasizing that every single person, I'm going to add on the word Jew from the perspective of the Jewish soul dealing here. The Rebbe's perspective is, number one, every single person is the work of God. Have you ever seen that famous poster? Little kid all upset with his hands like this, his head on the table, saying, I can't be nothing because God doesn't create nothing. So from the perspective of we are the creation of God, we are good. So number one, understand that at the core basis of every single person, you are good, holy, pure, who sometimes makes foolish mistakes. Welcome to the evil inclination. But the Rebbe doesn't just do that. The Rebbe takes it, and this is the, the climax of the entire lecture here. The Rebbe takes it to the perspective of understanding that the reason why good things happen to you is because God's ultimate goodness transcends the cause and effect reaction to your behaviors. Let me say that again. God's goodness, unconditional, infinite, eternal goodness transcends beyond the cause and effect relationship of our behaviors. Now ask me a question. Rabbi, what are you saying? Are you saying that good, the, the cause and effect that God Himself prescribes in the Bible, and if you shall walk in my statues, and if you shall not? Well, you tell me they're not real? I'm telling you they are real. But, now please hear this word, because this isn't reckless. This is deep, accountable, and responsible. The trust in God's ultimate goodness that tr transcends your deserved or undeserved cause and effect behavioral relationship. The mere absolute trust in God's goodness that transcends that cause and effect relationship is the vessel which deems you worthy, deserving, and capable of receiving ultimate goodness, regardless of what you have done. So the cure is not just to believe that you are ultimately a good person, but to realize that ultimately speaking, God's unconditional infinite goodness because of the ultimate purity, holiness and goodness of who you are beyond your behavior and cause and effect that trust in that goodness telling God I know that I may deserve not to be in the best position but I also know that your goodness will put me in the best position. That moment of absolute trust 
built on concentration, meditation, behavior, is what makes you worthy and capable of receiving goodness even if we're less than deserving. Understand how the Rebbe ripped out the self-sentencing by the roots. There's no argument no more. Stop making it all about you. It's all about God. It isn't even all about what you deserve. It's all about God's unconditional goodness. I want to just close this up and then we're going to read the enclosing which is a quick recap of all the points we said. What I'm telling you here is that the Rebbe is telling us that the trust, the absolute trust in God's unconditional goodness which transcends the cause and effect relationship of our behaviors because of our ultimate goodness, purity and holiness is what empowers us to see ourselves as good, pure and holy regardless of what we have done. Which then in turn empowers us of being able to do teshuva for what we did wrong. A person who sees himself as bad cannot do teshuva, repentance, for something that he did bad because that is who I am. But a person who now can see himself from God's bird's eye view, which is beyond our foolish mistakes, we are good, we are pure, we are holy. We are now empowered to do true teshuva for the mistakes that we slipped and made. Because that's not who we are. We slipped, we made a mistake, we can't clean up that milk, and we can, we can correct the situation and really do teshuva. Which in turn, my friends, is what God wants in the first place. God doesn't want to punish us. God wants us to do teshuva. So understand the process. I trust, absolutely trust, in God's absolute unconditional goodness to me, regardless of the mistakes I've made, which allows me to finally see that I am a good, pure, perfect, pure, holy person who's made bad mistakes which in turn allows me to do teshuva for those mistakes I slipped and made. Which fulfills what God really wants for us to do teshuva. Let's recap and put things in place, just in quick liners. Okay, I'm actually going to read this inside so we can just line things up, right? Let's line up the uh, dominoes here. Number one, A. The natural emotional state of being for the human is happiness. That was the first point we made. The second point, physical experiences do not endanger nor alter this happiness. That was the second point we made. Third point, emotional perceptions of what happened do endanger and alter this happiness. Okay? Number four, thus, happiness is affected when we shift from the what to the why. Fifth, E. When we self-sentence ourselves to being undeserving of goodness and, deser and, and deserving of happiness, then not only we can't be happy with what happened past, but we also cannot be happy because of what didn't happen yet. Remember, a self-sentencing person. Okay? F. 
The most powerful answer is to understand that what happens to us is depending not upon our behavior as much as it depends upon God's goodness and unconditional love for, for us. Rip the problem, the self-sentencing out by the roots. G. Our trust in this is what makes us deserving of receiving it. It's not easy, especially for someone who self-sentenced himself. I'm going to read that one again. Our trust in this unconditional goodness of God is what makes us deserving of receiving it. Final point. Therefore, think good and it will be good so that be happy once again. Guys, follow the process. Is it easy? No. Not easy for someone who has self-sentenced themselves. But please, understand that what you're telling me is that it's not easy to get the flame to once again go upwards or the stream of water to travel downwards. That's what you're telling me. You're telling me it's not easy to have a flame once again go back to its natural position of always pointing up. You're telling me that it's not easy to get the water to go back to its natural form of always seeping down. Please understand that you're telling me it's easy to be abnormal and it's very difficult to be normal. You're telling me it's uneasy to be natural. It's very difficult to be... I'm sorry, let's say it again. It's very easy to be unnatural and it's very difficult to be natural. Because somewhere along the lines, you've self-sentenced yourself. I deserve this. Why? Don't ask me the facts. Has God ever done you bad? Don't confuse me with the facts. Don't you understand? I deserve this. Oh yeah, I'm going to push you to invest in that property. It's going to go good for you. Well, why don't you do it? No, please. Nothing goes good for me. Why? Because I don't deserve it. Can I do something daring? Because the lecture is over, by the way. I want to do something daring. I didn't put this into my lecture because I didn't want to, but let's, let's do it now. This is the Q&A moment, okay? I'm asking for dialogue, not monologue. Have any of you guys read Harry Potter's books? No. <laughs> my daughters have. My children, all of them. <laughs> so, this morning in the shower, I'm once again running over my lecture. Once again running over. And it dawns upon me something so interesting. You guys don't know Harry Potter. I cannot believe I'm talking to such a primitive crowd. No, <laughs> Let's talk about this for a moment, okay? Not even... Okay, uh, let me just quickly... Oh my God, Rabbi <laughs> teaching Harry Potter. Good. In Harry Potter, understand the character cast. There's the bad guy, Lord Vanderblit, whatever his name is. There's the good guy, Harry Potter. There is the mentor of the good guy, Dumbledore. There's the questionable figure. We never really know who he is. Is he, he used to be one of the Dark Vaders, and now he's joined Dumbledore. We don't know who he is, and that is the mystery continuing happening all along. By the way, she's a great writer. Single mom, lived in a Section 8, who started writing... Oh my, oh my God, that story in itself is a story to live with. But let's go back to what I want to tell you. So, 
the issue is we get, we're clearly starting to see that one of these two need to die. It's either Lord Vanderblit or Harry Potter. They both now know that. Now, because of, I'm not going to tell you all the details, but because of the way the story starts, which you don't even know, you find out later, but because of the way the story starts, we know that there's been some deep connection, not that it was wanted by any of them, there's been some deep connection between Lord Vanderblit and Harry Potter. To the point where Harry Potter starts realizing that he's getting headaches because Vanderblit at that moment is throwing a total anger fit. And he starts realizing that he actually sees Vanderblit screaming or whatever it may be, the Dark Lord. He's, he reports this to Dumbledore who's very worried. Why? This is the point I want to share with you. Because Dumbledore realizes that whether they want it or not, and Vanderblit doesn't, the bad, the Dark Lord doesn't even know this yet, but there's been a doorway that has been opened between the mind of the Dark Lord and the mind of Harry Potter. They then immediately begin a process before the Dark Lord figures this out, because then he can destroy Harry Potter. They immediately begin the process of teaching Harry Potter the magic of how to close that door. Harry Potter throws a fit after trying again and again and again. He screams at this teacher, I can't do it! And the teacher turns around to him and tells him, Stop being such a weakling. Don't you understand what's at stake? And at that moment they use their magic wands and for the first time Harry Potter in a moment of absolute anger-driven determination lashes out and actually not only succeeds in not letting his teacher into his mind, he broke into his teacher's mind. The story goes on from there. That's the only scene that all of a sudden came back to my mind from what I read when I took a shower this morning playing over my lecture. By the look in your eyes, I see you know exactly why I told you this. Please understand what happened. The Dark Lord broke a gateway into your mind. And since then, whether he knows it, or you know it, or you like it or not, you're now realizing that you're forced to think the three Ps in a negative way. Because, please hear me, beyond any part of your psyche that has self-sentenced you to damnation, there is a deeper piece of you that knows that I am pure, holy, and good. But it doesn't make a difference, because whenever something happens, I am overwhelmed by the Dark Lord, who has broken into my mind, and will not allow me to see things the way I know it truly is. And here becomes a very powerful training of what I believe, if I remember correctly, in the book they call the magic of clemency. Clemency, I think, but I may be wrong. I don't remember what they call that magic. But for our table, let's take it away from magic. Let's talk real. You need to close that door. Nine years old. I was nine years old. What support system or power did I have? 
when the facts were on the table. That lady had the nerve to let my brother into the car and drive off, letting me know that it's my fault. I'm wild. I'm too dangerous to take. And then, my unconditional support system, God bless her, tells me, she's right. You are wild. You deserve this. You understand what happened at that moment? You understand that the Dark Lord broke a doorway into my mind. And when the next good thing happened, which probably happened in about an hour later, kids are full of good things happening to them, I didn't see it as a, oh, this is normal. I said, oh, okay, God, so you're throwing me a bone. Why? So you can take it away from me? And then when the next bad thing happened, oh, welcome home. This is good. This is normal. And what the Rebbe is telling you is don't tape up your door shut with some, what's it called, a duct tape? Rip it out. Rip out the roots of the Dark Lord. Rip it out. Don't just prune the tree. Rip it out by the roots. Rip it out by the roots by understanding that regardless of how you see yourself, it's never about you or how you see yourself. It's about the reality of God and how God sees you and that God is good and God does good. Unconditionally so. Because you are a piece of God and God does to God good because a piece of God is good, holy and pure. So what we need to do is get to work. We need to get to work on training our mind not to allow the Dark Lord back into our brain. We need to shut that door, seal it up, and then rip it out from its entire roots. How dare you think that you were mistreated by God? You tell me about your life. You tell me how many times God struck you down viciously because you are a garbage. No one ever asked themselves that question. How dare I think that God hates me? If God has any justice to Him, of course He hates me. Rip it out. Control the mind. Control the mind. Control the mind. Guys, you're at a Chabad class. This isn't no Kabbalah, close your eyes, hum your way, we're going to elevate the whole situation. This is Chabad. The word Chabad stands for three Hebrew words. The three lobes of your brain. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Don't tell me what you feel reality is. Tell me what your clear mind knows that reality is. And when the Dark Lord has invaded your mind, get to work at it. Get to work at it. Push it out. Guys, I think in pictures. So I want to tell you the picture that I see right now. The ones you probably saw in movies if you watch submarine movies. All of a sudden, Captain, there's been a breach in the door. And you see five people holding the door so that the water doesn't come in, right? You understand what I'm talking about, the Harry Potter Dark Lord now? There's a breach in your mind. And poisonous water is seeping in. What are you going to do? Suck it up? Just be happy? Absorb it all? Welcome to the new reality. Or are you going to get to work? You're going to get to work because beneath it all, you know that it's not true. You know that you are God's chosen child. 
a good child who's made some stupid mistakes. A good child who God loves and will do good because God is good. And all pieces of God is good. And God does good to good pieces of God, regardless of the mistakes you've made. And all of a sudden now I realize, oh, I'm a good person. So I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to do these bad things. They're not me. These clothing never really fit me in the first place. And then you rip it out by the roots. We could be happy because it's our natural emotional state of being. Guys, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.